Welcome back to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan. Each episode, I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. I'm excited to share this story with you, so let's dive in. So what would it be like um, to lose your father at a young age when many people would really need to have a father figure around and then try to navigate the rest of your life without having that presence in your life? That would be incredibly challenging. And that's something that uh, Dr. Ed Slover has navigated himself. And we're going to dive into that today and how that shaped his, basically his life trajectory, because it's played, it's obviously had a huge influence on who he is today and, and getting to where he is today. So um, Dr. Ed, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thank you so much, Coach John. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. And, and just uh, so where are you at currently? What are you what are you kind of up to? And then we're going to explore your story in terms of how you got to this place. Well, 18 months ago, I started a consulting business and management consulting firm. And uh, it's it's turned out to be more than I could have possibly imagined, especially you know being so young. Along the way, I wrote a book. Uh, I started a podcast. I started another company, Mindset <laughs> and Peak Performance uh, uh, Organization, and then subsequently published a second book. So it's been a busy 18 months. Uh, along the way with that, I, for the last eight years, I've worked as an assistant professor of management marketing at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. Okay. It's been an un- unbelievably rewarding experience. Prior to that, in a former life, I spent 16 years in the commercial health and fitness industry. Okay, so you, you you've had a you've had a busy life. You've done a lot of things, and you currently have a lot of things in your plate. So it sounds like you don't you don't have too much um, idle time on your hands, or you're you're extremely efficient, or maybe it's a bit of both. Uh, it's probably a little a little bit of both. I, I mean, it, it, I guess it really falls into the bucket of busyness dispels boredom. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, and so. You know, kind of in the early years of life, did you like? Did you um, grow up in Phoenix, or uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Ohio, uh, okay. about twenty minutes north of Dayton. And if you're not familiar with where that is, that's uh, about forty-five minutes northeast of Cincinnati. Okay. And I, I had a pretty nondescript uh, childhood up until about the age of thirteen, and then things changed quite a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, is, is this the time that your your father became ill? It was. We found uh, out that he was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer in May of 1987, and he mm. died at the end of August that year. Yeah. Wow. That that's quite sudden. And so, um, leading up to that point, um, you, you know, did you have quite a good relationship, or what, what was your relationship like with your father? I would say my relationship with my dad was a good one. Mm-hmm. My dad didn't speak unless he thought it improved the silence. And I don't know how much of that was a generational <laughs> thing. I, he, 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 and my, he and my mom, though, were absolutely in love. They got married when they were 19, 18, respectively. They were married ultimately 20 years, three kids. I was the, the baby. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was, it was a house full of love. But how my, dad and how my dad showed affection with me was asking me to go outside and toss the ball with him. Okay. Yeah. And those were some. Yeah. Th- those were some of the most impactful moments of uh, of time that I got to spend with him. But otherwise, he he didn't outwardly in, engage with us. We he would yeah. engage if we came to him. Uh, he wasn't <laughs> physically affectionate, but he would hug us back. 
right? Yeah, I, yeah. And, and like I said, I don't know how much of that was generational or just his yeah, personality. Yeah. But all in all, I, I would say our relationship was was a good one. Yeah. And so leading up to the time that he he fell ill, um, I mean, was there any indication of this or did it seem to be a rather sudden diagnosis? It was, it was quite sudden. This This is really interesting. My dad saw a life insurance commercial in December of 1986. He was mm. a smoker for all of his life, okay. but he was also quite physically active. He was an exceptional yeah. racquetball player. And he sees this commercial for a life insurance policy and he calls the number and he goes through all of the various tests necessary to get this life insurance policy. And sure enough, he was able to purchase it. Mm. Five months later, he was stage four uh, terminal terminal cancer. Yeah. And leading leading up to uh, that diagnosis living in Ohio, when, when the weather cleared off in the early spring, he and my mom would always walk around the neighborhood. Mm. And he, he said, you know, Connie, I'm not feeling well. I think I need to go see the doctor. And right then, John, my mom knew something was up because my dad could not have been more anti-doctor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they ran a series of tests over a period of weeks and they ultimately landed on, we need to go in and remove his gallbladder. In mm. retrospect, that was probably code for, we really don't know exactly what's going on here. We need to go in and look. Right, and right. Okay. The morning of his surgery, uh, he goes in and the doctors come out 20 minutes later. Now, this was a, supposed to be a multi-hour surgery. They come right, out 20 yeah. minutes later and they're sobbing. And they approach my mother and disclose the diagnosis. And at that time, his liver was 80% tumor. And, and wow. for, those that, for those that don't know, with pancreatic cancer, your, your pancreas is like a jalapeno pepper. Yeah. And it yeah. has one, one junction point. Now, most pancreatic cancer starts out at the end, which is yeah. why people are asymptomatic for a really long time. And but once it hits the junction and it just it spreads like wildfire and it's a 95 percent mortality rate within 12 yeah. months of diagnosis. It's it's yeah. a virtual death sentence. Yeah. My dad's cancer started at the junction. Oh, man. And, and yeah. so you have this you, you have this weird dynamic where he's buying a life insurance policy and by every measurable standard, he was healthy. And five months later, he's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I, you're right. I remember, um, I think it was Alex Trebek. He's a, you know, was a famous fella. And, and I remember him getting diagnosed with it. And you think like, um, uh, maybe that brought some more attention to it as, as an illness. But you're right. I've heard that it's essentially you get it and, and that's it. And I don't, I don't know how much you know, but I can't pretend to know a whole lot about it. But um, what is it because like do you know <laughs> maybe not a medical professional but do you, do you know like why why it is such a death sentence like why it's so difficult to treat if anything i think it's it, it so you have the asymptomatic nature you don't know you're sick right and then right, once yeah. you start feeling once you start feeling badly like in my dad's case the the cancer is just simply spread too far too fast 
Yeah. And for yeah. for him to go into surgery and then the doctors to come out 20 minutes later and communicate that his liver was 80% tumor and there's just simply nothing they can do really it serves to indicate how uh, how lethal that disease is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's quite something because yeah, it's um I mean I think I think anytime you hear the word cancer, um it, it strikes fear in the heart of the people. Uh, because there is exactly it is exactly that it is kind of a death sentence. Now, you know, and maybe there's something philosophically to be said that all of us are kind of living with a death sentence anyways, because we have a ticking clock, but we 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 go into this with into this life with kind of this expectation and I'm probably there's a good chance I'm gonna make it to old age. And we look at, you know, especially like living in North America, you know, a prosperous first world country, we have, you know, life expectancy nearing or or, or close to 80 years kind of thing. And so we kind of go into it with that that expectation and then when suddenly you're presented with news, you're not going to get to 80. You might not get to the next year of your life kind of thing. That's, that's quite a bit to cope with. Um, do you, do you remember, like, how did your dad uh, cope with the diagnosis? What, what was his first response? To hear my mom tell that story. Once she was allowed to go in to the recovery room and once he woke up, she told him and mm-hmm. he pursed his lips and just shook his head. Now, leading up to the surgery, the few days he had to drink gallons of some something. I don't. I I, I never right, learned yeah. exactly what it was, but it basically cleans you out. Yeah. And that was a completely miserable experience for him. And so when right. he pursed his lips and shook his head, he's like, "I I went through all of that for this," and and then he didn't say a whole lot. Uh, at least not right away. Yeah. And, and he, he came home and life was seemingly normal aside from he wasn't going to work anymore. Yeah. And as you might expect, John, he just got progressively worse over the course yeah. of the summer. Uh, in We brought hospice in and in many ways that was just to really help manage pain. He, mm-hmm. he would go, he would have these really, really nasty pain episodes uh, and then for the for the last for the last three weeks of his life, he was in a coma. Okay. Yeah. And the day the day he finally he passed away, it was it w- it was almost a movie script where my yeah. mother was sitting in beside him, and she could see he was he was there. He he had nonverbal facial expressions, but he was he wasn't awake. Yeah. And she had she had the the conversation that it's okay to go. And no yeah. kidding, right before he passed on, he opened his eyes and looked at her. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. And and then then he was gone. And it's a it's a weird psychology when you're dealing with someone that you love so much that's terminally ill that you know is in pain. And you know they're holding on for whatever reason because they're in love with your soul and they don't want to wait to see your soul again. Yeah, yeah. And it, on some level we were able to exhale. Yeah. Despite despite the sadness of yeah. knowing that it's going to be it's going to be a little while until we see one another again. And you know I I've I've heard it said that in one sense like cancer seems to be brutal but in another sense it's actually a merciful way to go because very often you're given a window of time. Mm-hmm. 
versus say a tragic accident where, where things happen suddenly and boom, someone's just torn out of your life. And, and you, you, so you probably go through a lot of the stages of grief, maybe while the process is still happening and maybe while they're still there, you're processing the fact. And maybe there's little bits of hope that you try to hold on to um, yourself as a, as a 13 year old. Did you, was there any hope that you were kind of holding on to or how do you find, cause that's like a really like transitional stage of life. You're going from, you're no longer just a boy. You're going into being a teenager and really starting the transition over the next few years into manhood. Like there's, there's a, there's a lot going on in, in a young man's life at that stage. How, how did you find yourself coping with that? That summer we, during the day we weren't around very often my uncle managed a swimming pool. And okay. so I spent most days all day at the swimming pool. Uh, and because 13 year olds are supposed to get out and be with friends and play yeah, and, yeah. And, and live life. And my mom was aware enough to, to create an environment for us to go do that. Yeah. As far as the five stages of grief, it's, you bring up a really good point in that when we first found out, clearly we were, I, I was, I, I was in denial. And I'm like, this is my dad. This isn't, yeah. this isn't other people. This is my dad. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. no, no, this, this isn't how this is going to go. And of course, you're, the one thing about the five stages of grief is that some people like to think it's this linear progression, but it's actually a progression regression as you're going through it, even after your loved one passes on. And I found myself all summer firmly immersed between anger and bargaining. And I'm bargaining with God to say another month, another, another day. Right. Yeah. Then you get to the day he died. Now you have to accept that fact, but that doesn't change the residual sadness you're going to experience despite having accepted it. Uh, and you, clearly you can't deny it anymore. So it, I, I found yeah. myself toggling between anger and depression for, uh, for quite a little while. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, I just think about that. Like that's, that's a lot just to try to, to take in. And I appreciate just kind of how you've, you've unpacked that because you're right. Perhaps we hear maybe those who haven't necessarily had to go through this experience, we hear about like the five stages of grief. We kind of think like you go from this to this, to this, but there's this oscillation back and forth between the stages as, as your mind is wrestling and trying to come to, to terms with this and, and you're, you're witnessing your mother as she's losing like the love of her life as well and going through that and going through the grieving process while still trying to be a mother to you and, you know, provide a stable, like loving home environment, you know, um, that's something quite significant. And were you able to be with your father at the time of his passing or, or were you somewhere else when that took place? Uh, I was at school. Okay. I was at school. Yeah. Uh, so I have two older sisters. Yeah. Uh, my oldest sister, six years older than I am. Uh, the, the, the middle, uh, troublemaker sibling is three years older than I am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my oldest sister was at home. My middle sister was actually on the band practice field. She was in high school. I was still in junior high. Right. And yeah. my uncle came to get us. He picked me up first as I was getting ready to get on the bus and let us know what happened. We went and, uh, and got my other sister and made, made our way home. And when I walked in the front door, my mother had just cleared the hallway. Mm. And she, she, she just looked at me 
and just just kind of shook her head. And I remember I remember probably being home 30 minutes being in my bedroom sitting on my bed just numb. Yeah. And my and my mom came in and she sat next to me and she just said hold me. That's the one and only time I've I mean I've obviously hugged my mother but that was the one and <laughs> right, only right. time where she was so emotionally raw and vulnerable and she she needed to find some measure of strength after having gone through what she went through in in caring for my dad th- that entire yeah. summer. And it, it, it certainly tough in the immediate aftermath. You know, going forward, you know, my oldest sister was had moved out. Uh, you know, a year, year and a half later, my next sister moves out. So within a, a eighteen months to two years after my dad died, we went from a family of five to a family of two, at least yeah. living under the same roof. And. I mean, that's an interesting dynamic even in and of itself, even when you're not dealing with, with grief. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I don't know how close you were or are with your, your sisters and how did that dynamic kind of play out? Like, did you support each other? <clears throat> I imagine maybe each of you sort of grieved in your own individual way, because again, you're kind of at different stages in life, whether, you know, one's getting ready to, to, to go to college ones and maybe the end of high school graduation. And so maybe you're just the annoying younger brother or something like that. But how, how did you, how did that sort of dynamic play out? I don't know about my oldest sister. I think the age difference at the time was such that we we, we, did, we couldn't really relate to one another for a variety of reasons. But my middle sister, she and I were very, very close going through all, all, all of this. And when she moved out and in and around that time, my mom got the first full-time job she ever had in her life. And she started her social life. She graduated high school and got married. And so she never really had that, you know, a social circle. And I, I found myself, and this is not to, uh, this, this is not to suggest that I, I was, I'm feeling sorry for myself. This is just what, how this played out where I became a latchkey kid. Right. Some, yeah. Somehow, some way, John, I found my way to school on time every day. Homework was getting done. I taught myself yeah. how to do laundry and iron clothes and uh, and figure it out while trying to cope with the emotions of the loss. Now, my mom, I will tell you, throughout the summer, my dad was sick. And even in the 18 months or so uh, afterwards, the one word I have to describe her is grace. Yeah. She yeah. is, she it was, is my absolute hero when it comes to managing crisis. And she did an unbelievable job. And it, upon reflection, it was time for her to go live her life. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the challenge, the challenge was there wasn't, enough of a recognition as to the unintended consequences of, of doing that. Mm. And I became very angry. I was angry at the world. I was angry at God. I was angry at my dad. I was just an angry and how I ended up coping 
was in philosophy, reading okay. philosophy of all things. And I found that my, I, I was able to level up my thinking. I started performing really, really well in school. My <laughs> vocabulary expanded and I had no qualms tearing strips off of people if I, if I didn't get good customer service, if they said something that was you know, flawed in any way. Mm-hmm. And, and my sister and I had drifted apart. Yeah. And I asked her, I'm like, why don't we have a relationship anymore? And she looked at me and she said, it's because you're a jerk. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's quite something to hear. And, and, and I, what a blessing in, it was. In, yeah. Yeah. In your state, maybe, I don't know, but did you, did you receive that? Like, did it shock you? I guess it, it did. I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have expected that, but yeah, we, you, you and I get that we need people in our lives to pull mm. things out of our blind spot. Yeah. Yeah. Especially knowing that we live so much of our day-to-day lives on autopilot. Well, that had yeah. been such a habitual thought pattern, habitual behavioral pattern for me. She just had removed herself because she just didn't want to deal with me. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it was when I basically gave her permission to tell me the truth by asking that question. Yeah. I got an honest answer and I needed that. And it mm-hmm. was a light bulb. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you've mentioned the word God a few times in here. And uh, obviously, so, so um, like, was your, was your father a man of faith and like, like were you, was your household like a church going household or um, what was, how did that factor into it? A church household? No. The only thing I knew growing up was my dad grew up Catholic. Okay. I just learned five years ago that my mom actually converted to Catholicism so they could get married in a Catholic okay. church. I, I never right, knew right. that, but we weren't practicing Catholics. We were practicing Christians. In fact, my first ever experience with anything church related, I went to a Sunday school with a friend and I'm going to say her name because I still remember it. Uh, Mrs. Clendenin. She was, mm. a she had red hair And she was asking questions, getting to know me before Sunday school. And I told her what I just told you. The only thing I know is that my dad grew up Catholic. And she proceeded to tell me that all Catholics were going to burn in the pit of fire. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's quite something. That's a good start. Yeah. yeah. And as you might expect, whenever I got home, I shared that with my mom. And my mom got her on the phone quicker uh, than anything. Yeah, no kidding. And, but my mom always, always had a personal relationship with, with Jesus. She, she, <laughs> she, she would read scripture, but she wasn't, she wasn't dogmatically Christian, not a Bible thumping type of scenario. And I always, I always believed, but I didn't know exactly what I was, what I was believing. Even to yeah. this day, as a person of deep faith, I'm not strong with scripture. Right, right. Um, but I have conversations yeah. with, with God through prayer, or uh, how you know, however that works. I, 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 I yeah. really feel like an immature Christian in so many ways, based on how other people do it. 
but it, but sure. it, it seems to work and it, it certainly is a grounding force in my life. Yeah. And so again, uh, sort of in the aftermath and as you're going forward in, in the years forward, um, you know, you mentioned like you, you were angry at God. And I, I mean, I think that's, a, um, I'm able to say it's a justified emotion. Or it's an understandable emotion because you feel like, okay, God is the giver and taker of life. He's taken away someone who's extremely important to me um, before what I perceive is his time. And so now I'm mad at you for making this, this decision. Did you ever find yourself wanting to like discard or, or let go of your faith or, or, you know, say, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't exist or, or anything like that. Frequently, frequently mm-hmm. through, throughout my certainly late teens and early twenties and then on and off, you know, up until uh, my, my early thirties. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure what changed. I was in my early 30s around the birth of my daughter. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this miracle happen in, in front of me. And it's certain, certain atheistic perspectives or Darwinian perspectives just stop making sense for me. Mm-hmm. And and then I started. I I just ha- started having more frequent conversations with with God, and yeah. there have been these moments over the last fifteen years where I I just feel a pull. I feel a pull to go in a different direction, and the only way I can describe it is it's like I get tapped on the shoulder, and mm-hmm. it's like okay, it's time to go this way. And I, well, how do I how do I know where I'm going? And the answer I hear is, that's not your problem. Interesting. Yeah. And you, you mentioned having having conversations with God. And so for somebody who, who might be listening, you know, um, and may, maybe there are people of faith listening, maybe there are people who are atheistic listening. Um, to, to me, it doesn't matter. I appreciate that you're listening. <laughs> um, right. But somebody might wonder, well, what does this look like in, in your experience to have a conversation with God? What, what does it look like for you? And, it, you know, because it may look different for many people. For me, it's daily prayer that doesn't that doesn't last very long. It starts by it starts from coming from a position of gratitude, mm-hmm. it, it, immaterial of what's going on. Just and this sounds somewhat cliche, John, but just having the opportunity to be here and show up, uh, show up in our worlds where we have a we have a shot at improving the lives of the people we let into our worlds. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just believe so firmly that's an unbelievable gift yeah. and almost an assignment really where we're assigned to give the world our best and to be, however we can figure it out to be fractionally better today than we were yesterday and tomorrow versus today in, in whatever it is that we want to be fractionally fractionally better than provided that it adds productive value to our life. Mm-hmm. As I tell my students, I mean, at the end of the day, life is a series of rooms or hallways like that, or yeah. car rides or whatever. And what a gift yeah. it is to have people come into our worlds and mm-hmm. be able to positively affect them. We never know how we come off to anybody unless they tell us we never truly know. And I'll never know the impact I had on a student that never said something that maybe got something from me that they can apply to their life in a really positive way, simply Mm -hmm. because I showed up 
better, you know, that particular moment because I'm thankful and so grateful for the opportunity to to have this gift. Yeah, I think whenever we go through an experience like something that you you went through there, um, you know, everyone's experience of loss, especially sudden or unexpected or early loss, if we could call it, you know, um, is different. But I, I I'm inclined to believe that it certainly does lead us to ponder existential questions. Why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? If there's a God that loves us, why does our God allow this to happen? And there's these different questions that kind of run through our mind. We wrestle with this and we try to come to 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 terms with it. And um, and you, you mentioned like witnessing the birth of your daughter really kind of created a, a shift for you. And so I guess leading up to that, um, what, what was it that you... Um, you know, you felt like maybe you wanted to throw this away and maybe it was just an angry response, but what was it that kept you kind of being drawn back to this and go, I, I can't totally throw this away. I I don't have a good answer for you on that one, John. Yeah. There's there. It, it was a nagging. It, it really yeah, was yeah. a nagging. <laughs> it, it's almost, it, it, it's almost, it's almost akin to this where if God is immovable, we have the choice as to how close our relationship is to him. For example, Christians become atheists all the time Mm -hmm. and they have a really close relationship where they can hear God's whisper. Mm -hmm. And over time, whether it's through personal tragedy, uh, loss of loved ones, whatever they, there's distance that created and there's eventually there's no amount of shouting that God can do to get their attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I never drifted that far. Okay. Yeah. But I drifted far enough where I just, I, it was this nagging. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something that you maybe appreciated in the moment. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But you're like, oh, this is annoying, but it feels like God won't give up on me. That's a, That's exactly what it feels like. And to, to many Christians, that's really hard to understand and appreciate. To non-believers, that seems nonsensical. And if I were an objective observer of my life and listening to what I just said out loud, I'd say, this guy's nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like trying to describe it is like trying to drink coffee with a fork. Yeah. It's like you can touch it, but you can't really get at the the true essence of it. It's not Mm. unlike how do we... How do we thoroughly explain our love for someone? Like yeah. I, I can't, I, I can't put words to the love for I have for my child. Our language is too yeah. primitive to adequately yeah. describe it, which is why we defer to cliche. Right. Yeah. And I think of that. I mean, I've got, I've got a you know a son who's going to be two very soon at the time of recording this, and like I pick him up into my arms, and and it's like when he when he sort of nestles into my shoulder, like. There really aren't words to describe what I feel. All I know is like, there's so many different. I guess there's. It, it's like you combine all the colors of the rainbow into one, and, and and you get you get white. And it's like there's these different layers of things that I'm feeling. You know, whether it's a fierce protection, a gratitude, and appreciation, and awe at the wonder of watching this little, watching his little brain take in the world. Like there's just so much that goes through. You're right. There really there really isn't isn't words and. You know, from a perspective of faith, I think, well, like faith, 
kind of like, cause I went through the world of, um, you know, physics and astrophysics and math and, um, high level inorganic chemistry. I was a science major and, uh, that was, and maybe a lot of people in their twenties kind of go through this, especially those who might be Christians or of faith, uh, trying to figure this out. Like, am I nuts for, for wanting to even wanting to believe this? Are, are the atheists right? Like, but I couldn't find adequate answers in it. No matter, like, and I would grill these people, and, and and I just I could not find adequate or satisfactory answers. And so maybe it was a little bit of the same where I felt this this nagging pull, where I was like, I just have a really hard time. Like, it, life doesn't make sense without this. And mm-hmm. so, wh- wh- you know, whether whether I like it or not, um, you know, I, I could try to argue it out of argue God out of existence, but that doesn't change anything. You know, and, and not only that, it's like. Well, I think I'd probably be just a, an angry nihilist if I, if I didn't believe in God, you know, just like, what is, what is the point in life? You know? And I mean, I've heard, you know, uh, what's his name? Ricky Gervais is a famous you know, comedian yeah. or whatever. And he's atheist. And he just talks about like, Hey, if, if you're watching a good movie, you don't want to skip to the end, but you know, and so on. And that's how he tries to describe it. And fair enough. You know, I, I don't, I'm not Bible thumping. I don't wear it on my sleeve or anything. I just kind of go about business. And I think if somebody sees something in my life, well, Hey, that's, that's really nice. I, you know, that, that's what I hope or what I aspire to. Um, does, sorry, I was going to ask, does, does your faith play or, or how does your faith maybe play a role in your professional life? Cause you, you have all these different things that you're doing, you, you know, you, you stave off boredom and whatnot. How does that sort of factor into the decisions that you make? At Grand Canyon university, it, I'm fortunate because it's the largest private Christian university in the country. Mm. So I can, I can openly talk about it. In fact, it's, it's welcomed. So it, it, and but I I temper it, knowing that ninety nine percent of my students are going to end up working for a secular organization. Yeah. So how how do you how can you bring your faith to work while knowing you have to be a bartender because you can't talk about sex, religion, or politics. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I do qualify that by saying, if you get the question, answer the question. If you have a coworker that asks you about your faith, communicate your faith. Mm. One of the things, though, I find off-putting about Bible-thumping Christians is that when they get the question, they open the fire hose on that person. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, what about this? What about crafting your answer well enough so that person is then curious to ask the next question, where it actually becomes a dialogue and an exchange rather than a a monologue. Mm. I think that I think we do a disservice to our belief system because we we take liberties that we shouldn't have otherwise taken. Yeah. Now, going back to your question as it relates to Quest Consulting or the Quest for Life, I'm. I'm open about it. Mm-hmm. The clients that I've worked with since really the start of last year, I've, I've had no reservations communicating that I'm a person of faith and, uh, and I live out and through those values. If that happens to be something that they don't want to go anywhere near, that's okay. That's their decision. I can respect mm-hmm. it. I don't have to like it. Yeah. But the reception, John, has been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. And I, 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 feel can't, like, I can't explain that. Well, I, I feel that 
despite how, I don't know, maybe media and social media would largely like to portray this. And, and you're right. I, I'm a Canadian and I, th- there's something you have to admit, there's something seemingly unique about some of the flavors of Christianity, if you will, that uh, I hear about or, or, you know, um, that, that's come out of the U S that, that like, just like, that seems a bit weird. <laughs> like that seems a little over the top or like, I, it's hard for me because I'm just, just quietly go about my business. You know, I guess I'm not like this ostentatious, whatever. I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I just quietly go about my business. And you're right. It's like, cause I feel like, you know, God didn't thump down the door to my heart like a domineering tyrant, right. but it was just like, it was kind of like, like you said, like a nag, just like a knock at the door and be like, you know, are you interested in getting to know me? Would you like to let me in? You know, I'm not, I'm not actually a tyrant. I, I will in fact just let your life take its course and leave you alone if that's what you want. But it's, I have things I would like to offer you, you know, and a, a better life than you could probably have um, of your own accord. And so you're right. When I, when I, I, I love the fire hose analogy, just like, uh, cause I, I used to do fire, firefighting in the Navy and I'm like, man, those hoses pack a lot of force. And and that that's probably like the, the worst thing that you could do because everyone's journey through this life you know, even just trying to figure out some sense of like, what's the meaning or purpose of life, the, you know, the greatest existential question there might be. Um, it could take years. There's a reason that God gives us years of life because it probably takes us that amount of time to, to sort of come to terms with, with it. And, you know, do you, do you feel like, um, or, or maybe at this present time where you're at right now, how would you, how would you put into words what you feel like the meaning and the purpose of life um, is? Put simply, to look more like Jesus every day. <laughs> if you if we use the metaphor of diamond, now yeah. for for believers that are dogmatically Christian, this has this metaphor has some holes in it because there's no such thing as a perfect diamond. But just hang with right, me right. on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what what are the three things necessary in order to produce a diamond? You need a lot of time. You need a lot of heat and you need a lot of pressure. <laughs> Those three things are the metaphor for life, whether you're a believer or not. Yeah. And what I've come to learn is that alongside that, God doesn't really care so much about my safety and comfort. What mm-hmm. he cares about is looking more like his son. Mm. And, to, and the operative word being more. Knowing that we're, you know, at, at various points in our lives, we think we have arrived. We've never arrived. There are arrivals and we take stock of, of how well we've done, you know, the proverbial journey along the way. Hmm. And going back to what I said earlier about how we show up, what if, what if we show up looking more like Jesus moment to moment? What's the downside to that? And what I've also learned is anytime we can engage in anything that doesn't have a downside, why wouldn't we do it? Mm. Even if it's just to learn more about it. I had a friend a number of years ago, we were uh, getting ready to play tennis and he was talking about his wife being a non-believer and he grew up in the church, but he was lukewarm about it. And I asked him like, what if it's not true? What if none of it's true? What if it's all just stories? Is there a better guidebook for life than the Bible? I mean, generally speaking, is in, in terms of living ethically, living you know a moral life, living you know having a, a strong a strong work ethic, treating people others or treating people well, like the golden rule. Mm. 
And if Jesus isn't who we, I believe him to be, based on how he lived, wouldn't you follow him? I mean, that's the mark of leadership where yeah. if you want to assess the strength of anyone's leadership, you don't look at the leader. You look at how many willing followers they have. And mm-hmm. then you have other people throughout history that like, like a Gandhi or a Mother Teresa or others where <laughs> Nelson Mandela, where people willingly followed because of what they stood for. So even if none of it's true, it's probably a, a really solid guidebook for life. And that's, that, you know, that's a, an individual that you would want to follow. Mm-hmm. Above and beyond the fact that there's really just no downside. Yeah. You know, just to take a slightly different um, lane here for a moment, because I, I, I think I recall coming across something in your story, just where maybe for a period of time in your life, you were trying to impress your father after he had passed away. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the question I was thinking of here was just how long did that last? And then at what point in time, you know, what, what caused this shift where we realized maybe I don't have to, I don't have to do it for those reasons. Lasted 20 years after he died. My dad put a premium on education. Mm-hmm. He, when he was 18, just before he um, was starting his freshman year in college, the summer before his dad had a massive heart attack at age 48 and died at the pool. Mm-hmm. And that had a profound effect on him. They were very, very close. And my dad was an incredibly intelligent and he went through the first semester. He ended up on academic probation. He went through the second semester. He, he was suspended and kicked out and he never went back to school. He always put a premium though on education. And to learn about my dad through other people after he died, I was told by numerous people that he would have made sure I got to college and he would have made sure that I was a mediocre engineer because he was crazy conservative and, and you, know, you, you have a good paying job. You, you work in that job mm-hmm. for 30, 40, 50 years. That's how that would have gone. But knowing that he put such a premium on education, I ended up doing that too. Yeah. So I, I graduated, I graduated uh, with, with my bachelor's a year and a half later, I started my master's a year and a half after that, I started my doctoral program and I had my, I defended my dissertation in, in early 2007. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, working in the health and fitness industry, that was academic overkill. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, to have, to have a, a doctor of management and organizational leadership in the gym business, that just didn't happen. But it was fulfilling an expectation that I thought he would have had had for me. Mm-hmm. And I, w- without the knowledge of whether or not he would have ever expected anything like that. Right. And, right. and what you, what you, what I came to realize is while that was a tremendous accomplishment, it, it was fulfilling for me because I was able to validate myself. I didn't need external validation to make, me feel accepted or like I belonged you know, or that he loved me more, you know, looking down from on high. It wasn't a situation like that. And I, and I was able to release that. Mm-hmm. 
I was able to release whatever, whatever standard I thought he had for me, I was able to release it. And it was, it was this period of, of my life in my mid thirties where I came to recognize that when we live by the expectations of others, that's always going to be a moving target. Mm, yeah. But what about say that this? again? You're right. But what about this? What about going to work every day and doing it well for the sake of doing it well, not to get recognized, not for the promotion, but doing it well because you have a standard that's higher than anybody else's. And if you don't live up to that standard, you have to walk to the parking garage and reconcile for yourself that you you didn't do that. I can't I can't even fathom that. Some days are better than others, but the effort is always lifted to that standard. And what's interesting about that is that when you show up with that mindset, where I'm going to do I'm going to perform this well for the sake of performing this well, all of a sudden, someone comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, would you want would you like to interview for this promotion? Hmm. Or they give you the promotion or they give you an award or they recognize you somehow. And what that all that is, is proof of you having lived by and through your values. Yeah. So we're not we're not actively seeking it because we all we all know, John, that there there are people that we cross our paths that verbally give us their resume. Right. Yeah. And, and we understand why that is. They wouldn't do it if it didn't work for them in terms mm -hmm. of getting attention. They just, they would do something else. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's worked for them. But I just choose to say, you know what, that we hit, there are societal standards, there are familial standards that are like, you know what, what about, what about grounding in our own value system and not living for everyone else? And this ties back to what I said earlier, because that allows us to show up better mm. both for ourselves and for others. Mm. And just, just lastly, you know, fascinating, just, just hearing you share your thoughts. Um, I've just enjoyed exploring this conversation. Um, Along the way, you, you have a wife and you've got uh, at least one child. I, I, I realize now I, I don't know the, the rest of your family dynamics, but, um, you know, your, your wife then has at least watched some of the stage of your journey play out and take place. And um, how, how has she assisted you in kind of navigating? Because the person that you might have met and fell in love with and married, you know, a number of years ago, isn't the same person today. You've both evolved through this kind of journey and she's had the, uh, you both really have had the privilege of witnessing the transformation that each one goes through. And, and how has she supported you going through all of these different things? Uh, unwavering. Mm. Unwavering support. The so we're we've been together 10 years next month. Awesome. And everyone who's been in a long term relationship knows this is quite normal. Yeah. And yeah. The ups that's and actually downs. that's actually good when yeah, it's doing yeah. that because it hasn't flatlined yet. Yes. Yeah. The so we're a blended family. Yeah. My biological daughter is is Jocelyn. My stepdaughter is Evelyn. My wife's name's Carolyn. So it's the house of Lynn and Ed. Yeah. <laughs> and, I like that. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people like to think that a blended family is where you take some fruits and vegetables and put them in a blender and it makes a really nice smoothie. 
Well, right. blended families require broken glass and nails and other <laughs> other stuff in the blender. Yes, and it, it it has it certainly hasn't all been all been easy. And she but she's she's been an absolute rock. An yeah. absolute rock. For example, I had an opportunity to get out of the health and fitness industry and into higher education, but in a part-time role. This is going back to 2014. Doing so would have required that she hit her sales goals every month to offset my salary decrease. <laughs> and for 10 months until I was able to get a full-time role at Grand Canyon, she hit. Keep in mind, John, that in the seven months prior, she only hit once. Right. It was utterly, utterly fascinating. And now fast forward to, to this spring. I've been, I've been wrestling with God over the last few months and have never felt fatigue like I've, like I've felt. And it's this, it's this back and forth with, do I stay at Grand Canyon and have Quest? Or do I just stay at Grand Canyon? Or do I just do Quest? Right, yeah. And I've been able to, I've been able to finally get to a place of calm and peace and with the unwavering support of my wife, this will be my last semester as full-time faculty at Grand Canyon. Okay, that's remarkable. Um, quite quite a story arc and quite a, quite a journey you've been on. And this certainly isn't the the end of the road for you. And you know, there's many more things I would love to explore. And so I think I would encourage people to um, go and have a listen to um, your your podcast. In fact, why don't, why don't you plug um, some some of the resources you put out there? Because I think there's so much more of, of you to be explored here. Yeah, so I'm in the first stages of season three of the Quest for Life podcast. So that's mm. Quest, the number four uh, life. And the whole design of me starting it was just to try to help improve people's lives. Mm. But my first two seasons, I didn't really have specific themes. It was really topics that I was interested in in learning more about and talking about. This season, it's really focused on helping people level up their mindset so they can achieve peak performance, whether it's in an, certain yeah. aspects of life or, or business. Mm, that's and, and let me tell you, it's absolute therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolute therapy. It, you know. There, there, I just love getting to engage in conversations like this. You know, it's it's part of the reason why I podcast as well. And, you know, for those who are listening again, I thank you so much for for tuning in. It, it means the world to me um, to to have people who find value in these conversations. And I love podcasting as a, as a media form because it's like for the listener, you get to, you get to be an eavesdropper into like a personal and intimate kind of conversation. And so. I love that. I love everyone who who supports the show, and and thank you for that. And uh, and as we as we wind up, um, I always like to ask my guests if if someone's been listening to this conversation today, what is what is one nugget of wisdom that you would like them to take away from from hearing what we've shared today? To unmemorize our past self, mm, and that's a good one. whether whether or not that's through. Uh, prayer or meditation, other mindfulness pursuits, wh whether it's sitting in, 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 a, in a quiet room or becoming engrossed in, in a book that blows your hair back, something that feeds our soul in a different way. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Because you know, neurobiologically, if you imagine when we're little, our brains are dry, flat riverbeds. And as we start learning, we start cutting these neurochemical grooves. Well, if we're living a life of pain, we're continuing to cut that groove. If we're living through fear, the groove gets cut. And we need to unmemorize that at least enough to start cutting new grooves. Pick one thing every day to do a little bit differently. If you're not engaging in physical activity, take a 10-minute walk. Be fractionally better today than you were yesterday. If you like cookies for dessert, instead of having five, have four. And and, and celebrate those small wins. Because what we end up finding as a way to unmemorize our past selves is that these little mini mini victories start building momentum and create a positive feedback loop. And we end up feeling better about ourselves. We end up feeling better physically. We have more energy. We show up differently. People take notice. All of a sudden, we really gain some positive momentum to, uh, to direct our lives in a different, more productive way. I love that so much. Um, and I think that fractional fractional change is so crucial because we try to do it in big leaps and we end up falling falling flat. But this is working with our brain the way that our brain works. And so some of the best advice that uh, could be out there. Um, thank you again for being on the show. It has truly been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for tuning into Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward.